0: This SCCM Critical Care podcast is sponsored by the Cerner Corporation. Healthcare is too important to stay the same. And now more than ever, we at Cerner Corporation are on a mission to transform it. Our breadth of innovative critical care solutions are enhancing workflows, improving documentation efficiency, and extending ICU resources to improve patient care. And through our sepsis solution within our comprehensive population health management program, We are providing industry-leading alert capabilities that help clinicians detect and treat sepsis quicker. We believe that every life deserves the best possible outcome. Join us on our mission. Visit Cerner.com today.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today, we will be speaking with R. Philip Dellinger, MD, MCCM, who is with us today to discuss highlights from the updated Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. Dr. Dellinger is Director of the Section of Critical Care Medicine at Cooper University in Camden, New Jersey. He was also one of the co-chairs of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, published in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Dellinger, thank you for being here today. So a lot of what we did with the, the, the previous septic guidelines is we established hardwired expectations of uh, time from the appearance of SERS-type criteria to appropriate antibiotics or resuscitation endpoints do we see any difference in the the new guidelines compared to the old guidelines? And and for those listeners who who may not be familiar with that, and I always want to assume that people aren't familiar with the guidelines as well as they should be, maybe we should just review what the expectations are in regarding source control, resuscitation, and appropriate antibiotics.
2: So let's start with antibiotics. Uh, Once the diagnosis of severe sepsis is known or suspected, uh, the goal of getting antibiotics uh, started in the patient uh, is an hour. Uh, We say goal of therapy because uh, we're aware that In 2012 and probably for some years to come, uh, it's a target uh, that we would like to achieve but uh, is not currently being achieved. So it's a goal of therapy to get antibiotics in within an hour after diagnosis. Very difficult to do, but it's a lofty target uh, that's worth aspiring to. From an initial resuscitation standpoint, There have been some changes since 2008. Uh, We uh, now recommend uh, crystalloids uh, as the number one fluid choice, so start fluids in everybody. And if the patient uh, is uh, requiring uh, large amounts of crystalloids to maintain cardiovascular stability, uh, we suggest uh, adding albumin. Uh, to the resuscitation fluid regimen. We are recommending uh, against uh, head of starch, and maybe we can come back to that uh, because I think that's worth uh, drilling down. And we recommend uh, 30 ml per kg uh, crystalloid bolus, uh, or uh, the initial fluid challenge would be 30 ml per uh, kg uh, some patients may require more than that.
1: The choice of antibiotics um, initially, uh, you say we're, we're shooting for an hour goal, and unless you haven't been involved in critical care since 2008, we've been over that frequently. And we know that the impact of the delay of antibiotics—how does that impact mortality? I mean, it's you know obviously the slower, the, the worse the outcome, but it's it's pretty profound the impact of delayed antibiotics.
2: Clearly, you—it's um, impossible. To have uh, randomized control clinical trials uh, with antibiotics, where you would randomize uh, one patient to get antibiotics at one hour, another at three, another at six, uh, just can't be done. Uh, so what we're relegated to is to look at large databases uh, where patients got antibiotics after one hour from diagnosis, and two, three, four, five, six, and it's pretty clear from analysis of these databases uh, that there is a uh, association between earlier antibiotics and better outcome.
1: And the, the fluid bolus of 30 per kilo, that's pretty specific. That seems to be a, a new recommendation. Uh, can you give us some uh, background as to how we came to this 30 cc per kilo recommendation and, and what the positive implications of that are going to mean?
2: If you go back to 2008 and 2004, uh, when we created the uh, sepsis bundles, which are our performance improvement quality indicators uh, that goes with uh, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, uh, we initially chose 20 mLs per kg in 2004. There is no data, no high-level data, uh, of randomizing patients to get 20, 30, 40. We chose 20 mLs per kg uh, crystalloid in 2004 with the performance improvement program because we felt that patients were not getting 20 mLs per kg with initial fluid challenge, and we felt that that would be a good initial goal. There was a lot of discussion and uh, arguments that that was not enough, but we felt like we should start and just pick a fluid resuscitation quantity uh, that was not being achieved. Uh, and now we're years down the road, uh, and the decision was made to let's bump it up to 30 mLs per kg uh, because actually we probably felt that that was um, a, maybe what it should have been uh, back in 2004 but baby steps uh, were what we were thinking
1: I think it's 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 interesting and I think it's probably as you would say it's it's well overdue I think my opinion and my experience has been that a lot of people who don't see septic patients routinely perhaps um, are are a little bit conservative in their fluid resuscitation, and do we still have the same resuscitation endpoints that we did in two thousand and eight?
2: We do, but let me regress briefly uh, and just talk about uh, you know the amounts of fluid that are needed. Uh, there's a a large uh, potential capillary leak. So these patients with severe sepsis and septic shock are leaking fluid out of the vascular system. There's venodilatation, uh, so the blood is being pooled in the venous capacitance area and not getting back to the heart. So you have to prime the system with enough fluid to fill that dilated venous capacitance area and to replace the leak. And the uh, left ventricle, Uh, the ejection fraction is decreased, Um, it becomes more compliant, and that also requires additional fluid from baseline. There are a lot of factors coming together that necessitate very aggressive fluid resuscitation. An example that I like to use is that if a 50-year-old patient came in with sepsis-induced hypotension, septic shock, and had previously been healthy and was leaking fluid out of their capillaries, dilating their venous bed, if you compare that patient to a patient with known end-stage renal disease, aneuric, on dialysis, they're still going to require the same amount of fluid resuscitation. It's just a matter of in the patient that uh, in end-stage renal disease, you have to be careful about overshooting. Now let's go back to your question about the goals. Uh, we kept the same goals we had in 2008, uh, which is uh, quantitative resuscitation goals based on early goal-directed therapy, but uh, We don't call it early goal-directed therapy anymore. We uh, call it quantitative resuscitation. It may be that two or three years from now there will be a better recipe, Uh, but we still uh, recommend uh, targeting a CVP of equal to or greater than 8 and uh, an SCVO2, uh, Spirabina Cava O2 saturation of uh, 70% or greater. That's our primary targets. Uh, For the first time, we've introduced a uh, lactate target. Uh, We have a suggestion uh, to target normalization of lactate. If you read the rationale, it further uh, illuminates uh, these targets uh, by saying that if you have capability to put in a uh, neck or chest catheter, Uh, to transduce CVP and to measure a venous blood gas to get at uh, O2 sat, that's good. You should do that and target those uh, particular parameters. If you don't have that capability but you do have lactates, then you can use lactate normalization as an alternative. Uh, If you have both... Uh, we recommend that uh, you should consider uh, targeting both uh, uh, for resuscitation.
1: And when it came to the uh, fluids for resuscitation, you know, you commented use on crystalloids, alluded a little bit to colloids in the form of albumin, but were specific to recommend that HETA starch not be used.
2: Yeah, and um, our recommendation um, against the use of HETA starch is partly based uh, on randomized clinical trials and uh, partly based on uh, if there is a concern about HETA starch and you have the alternative of using crystalloids and albumin, uh, then unless there's additional information that indicates that heterostarch, is not a problem. Uh, we should be using other fluids in preference to head starch. If you look at the, the data, the Christmas trial, I think that's CRYSTMAS, compared uh, starch with uh, crystalloids and showed no difference. Then the 6S trial compared head starch and crystalloids and showed uh, increased mortality with head starch. So you had one trial that did not show uh, harm and then one trial that did. And then you recently had another trial called CHEST which again showed uh, increased renal replacement therapy uh, with the head of So if you weigh the sum of the literature, there certainly is uh, significant concerns about head of starch, and uh, therefore our recommendation uh, that it not be used. There is another clinical trial called CRYSTAL, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L, that was just recently finished, which will be another clinical trial of head of starch use that should allow us to get additional information uh, about safety and uh, clinical outcome issues.
1: So how does the albumin fit into
2: all this? Well, we think that uh, albumin is definitely safe. Uh, It's as safe as crystalloid. Uh, It's more expensive. And since it's more expensive, crystalloid would get the nod. But albumin has the advantage of sticking power inside the intravascular system. So if you're giving crystalloid after crystalloid after crystalloid, uh, it would make sense to put something into the vascular system that has more staying power.
1: Now, some might ask, maybe not having total familiarity with the Cochrane data, uh, but it gets quoted a lot into this circumstance and may not have total familiarity with the sepsis data. Someone would say, well, I, I thought Cochrane showed that the use of albumin had worse outcomes. Well,
2: uh, you know, there there have been two Cochrane's with albumin. Uh, the most recent one uh, did not show that. In fact, there are some uh, published uh, peer-reviewed meta-analyses, including one um, either in late 2011 or 2012 that supported uh, albumin uh, giving better clinical outcomes than crystalloid in a meta-analysis.
1: So we have the fluids, we have new resuscitation algorithms. Um, what else has changed? One of the things that I'm obviously very interested in is the use of steroids. What are the recommendations for that? Because the use of steroids seems to be something that is blatantly overused by some providers and, and all patients and people who are doing cortisone stimulation tests and the like uh, in patients who are septic. Has that changed at all?
2: It's changed. Uh, our recommendation for steroids has changed in how the recommendation is stated. Uh, it's, it is less supportive uh, of using steroids in septic shock than our 2008. In 2008, uh, we recommended that steroids be used only in patients with septic shock that was poorly responsive to fluids and vasopressors. So we flipped it in 2012. We recommended that it not be used in patients who had hemodynamic stability achieved uh, with fluids and vasopressors. We felt that by having a recommendation that spoke to not using it as the recommendation as opposed to using it only, uh, that that would further discourage the use. Where where we still, um, I guess we've failed to optimally inform the bedside clinician uh, is that we don't give specifics um, on achieving hemodynamic stability with fluids and vasopressors. And that may vary from clinician to clinician as to what that is. One clinician may say that after adequate fluids, If my patient is on real high vasopressors, even if I do uh, have an acceptable MAP, I'm going to view that patient as still hemodynamically unstable. Uh, Someone else uh, may say, well, I achieved hemodynamic stability because I'm at my MAP target. As a general rule, the higher the dose of vasopressor and if the patient is requiring multiple vasopressors after fluid resuscitation to achieve adequate MAP target, that would be a patient in which steroids might well uh, be recommended.
1: Uh, And it's just the use of steroids absent any stimulation testing?
2: Yeah, we we recommend that you make a decision just based on uh, the patient's hemodynamic uh, stability after fluids and vasopressors and not use the ACTH stem test. Uh, There was initially uh, some encouragement about being able to differentiate uh, patients that uh, would be more likely to benefit from steroids by not being able to bump their cortisol with ACTH stimulation by uh, nine or more. Subsequent data indicated that that's not as reliable as we initially thought. Plus, there's a lot of variability in cortisol measurements over time and across institutions. <clears throat> so, that's probably not a good idea. Uh, if you're looking for, you know, classical adrenal insufficiency where the cortisol level is low and, and doesn't rise with the ACTH stem test, you know, that makes sense. But, uh, we're talking about the adrenals instability, uh, the 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 septic shock type uh, adrenal uh, dysfunction, and there we think that it's just uh, empiric treatment based on hemodynamics.
1: Now, in your last answer, you you mentioned you were talking about vasopressors. Where are we at with recommended vasopressors in 2008? They were the preferred vasopressors, and you know, kind of the secondary rescue vasopressors and the the, the recommendations identified vasopressors that didn't feel it added any benefit. Have those recommendations changed at all?
2: Markedly. Uh, The recommendations for vasopressors uh, have been totally revamped. You you probably won't recognize them. Uh, (laughs) In 2008, uh, we gave uh, equality to norepinephrine and dopamine as first choice. Uh, In 2012, we clearly make norepinephrine the uh, first choice frontline vasopressor. The second line, uh, the next vasopressor you would go to would be epinephrine. And vasopressin, low-dose vasopressin, uh, would also take uh, precedence over dopamine. We've sort of dropped dopamine all the way to the bottom of the list and recommend that dopamine only be used in niche circumstances. Uh, Patients that have uh, absolute or relative bradycardia and uh, low risk for tachyarrhythmias uh, might be a niche that you would consider dopamine. But if you didn't uh, have that present, then you'd start out with norepinephrine. And if you achieved your target with norepinephrine, that's great. If you couldn't get the MAP up with norepi, then you'd add epinephrine, and the epinephrine uh, would be added with the anticipation uh, that you would either end up with norepi plus epi or perhaps wean the norepinephrine off and replace it with epinephrine. As opposed to low-dose vasopressin, 0.03 units per minute, with that drug, you could use it in two different ways. If you did not achieve your MAP target with norepinephrine, you could add the low-dose vasopressin as an option to adding epinephrine. Or if you did achieve your MAP target with norepinephrine, you could add vasopressin at low dose in order to decrease your norepinephrine requirement. The use of vasopressin uh, to decrease norepinephrine uh, was shown to be safe and equally effective as norepinephrine alone uh, in the vast trial, V-A-S-S-T.
1: It's interesting that dopamine in a matter of, in 20 years, used to, it was our first-line drug for everything, including the old anachronistic renal range dopamine, to now being relegated as a third-line agent.
2: I agree. And and norepinephrine, uh, when I was a young house staff physician, um, we would get a kick out of calling it leave them dead. Correct, yes. Instead of levofed, leave them dead, meaning that if your patient was on norepinephrine, it meant that uh, all the other drugs had failed and the patient was likely to do poorly. And now, based on uh, a recent data, uh, including randomized trials comparing dopamine and norepinephrine, in which uh, there's been concern raised about uh, dopamine and uh, potentially uh, life-threatening uh, tachyarrhythmias, uh, and plus norepinephrine uh, being at least uh, as good with survival uh, and better survival, uh, although the the most recent study uh, did not reach uh, statistical significance but a strong trend. But if you take a strong trend uh, and a consistent trend because it was across not just septic shock but other types of shock as well where norepinephrine performed better uh, and without the concern of the potentially Uh, lethal tachyarrhythmias, it makes sense to give norepinephrine the non.
1: So we reviewed the fact that we have changes in, uh, well, softening the language um, regarding antibiotic administration. We still want that antibiotic within an hour from the first signs of SIRS, but um, the guidelines recognize logistically that's very difficult. However, that is a goal that clinicians should still try to continue to obtain.
2: Every time, that should be the goal. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll, over the next uh, eight years, we'll get systems in place uh, so that we can uh, achieve that goal.
1: And as time goes on from that time of of long hour, mortality goes up exponentially.
2: There's an association uh, from database literature that uh, mortality marches forward
1: so of all of the the fancy variables we talk about about endpoints resuscitation and metabolic resuscitation endpoints and adrenal insufficiency if there's one thing that you would have clinicians really focus on would it be getting that antibiotic into the appropriate antibiotic in a short period of time
2: yeah, now you know I'd like to have more than just one. Yeah, but I know. <laughs> if if I, if if I had to choose one, I'd I'd take the early antibiotics.
1: Fair enough. Um, and then, you know, we we really want the listeners to to really immerse themselves in in the written guidelines and and really take this as part of who they are. I t- teaching residents would always make a point that I thought they should know the surviving sepsis guidelines better than they do their ACLS. Um, explain to the listeners why it's really important for all clinicians, not just the the providers and the MPs, but the ICU nurses and the respiratory therapists, to know these guidelines and to live these guidelines. What is the impact on our patient outcome?
2: I think from a nurse standpoint, uh, they're key for early identification. Uh, So if you can identify these patients earlier, it gets you an hour. If you identify the patient an hour earlier, And you get the antibiotics in in the same amount of time that you would if the patient had been identified an hour later. It's the same as getting the antibiotics in an hour earlier. It makes sense? It does. And also nurses um, are a good uh, checklist monitor in that, uh, well, doctor, you know, where are the antibiotics on this patient? Did you order them? Or do you want this patient to have some more fluid uh, because we've only got 20 mls that uh, have been ordered and delivered thus far? Or, uh, doctor, you know, we seem to be giving this patient an awful lot of crystalloids and we're still having trouble keeping the blood pressure up. Do you want to give some albumin?
1: And as far as the rest of the providers, I mean, if I'm a physician, I mean, this is obviously important. We talk about it's important, but it's To me, it's fascinating, not only the fact that um, the process changes so much from 2012 to 2008, and even when you look back from 2004 to 2008. Clearly, when you're managing critically ill patients, you have to stay on your toes, I mean, and stay apprised a of what's happening, what's new, what are the newest guidelines. Uh, and so if you're doing what you did when you got out of residency or a fellowship, it doesn't take very long to get outmoded. That's
2: true, you know, particularly uh, if you're not in an academic practice where, you're teaching uh, residents and you're sort of uh, forced uh, to stay up uh, with the recent literature through uh, house staff conferences, et cetera. It's it's very easy uh, in a straight private practice environment to to end up uh, using somewhat outmoded uh, evidence for how you practice.
1: Dr. Dellinger, is there anything else about the guidelines that I failed to mention or that you th- feels important for the listeners?
2: Well, blood cultures, um, ideally, before antibiotics. Uh, you know, this year we we have something that recommends, uh, recommendation for antibiotics, um, for blood cultures given before antibiotics, unless it's going to delay uh, the antibiotics by uh, more than 45 minutes. You know, that's weighing the value of being able to grow an organism out that you might not have been covering with your regimen or growing an organism out so you can can hone down the regimen, uh, uh, getting rid of potentially toxic uh, antibiotics. Source control is important uh, you don't want to miss uh, an abscess, an infected appliance, uh, infected uh, ascending cholangitis. You know, those types of things uh, need more than just antibiotics, so you've got to keep those in the front of your mind. And what would be
1: your initial choice of antibiotics in as in far as empirical therapy?
2: Well, you know, it's going to vary somewhat uh, based on your, you know, what your antibiotic is and what you're seeing. But we tend to break it down into whether the patient is um, a community-acquired infection or whether it's uh, uh, immunocompromised, hospital-associated, chronic care facility, uh, substance abuser. If it's a solid citizen that comes in with severe sepsis and septic shock that's not recently been in the hospital and not in any type of long-term care facility, um, that patient uh, you would uh, target uh, grand positives. uh, And based on whether you're seeing MRSA, regardless of risk factors, whether it's just present or not, you'd certainly want to consider covering that. Uh, whereas in the other group, the immunocompromised, uh, hospital-associated, uh, you're going to want to cover uh, gram negatives, uh, gram positives uh, in MRSA.
1: Great. Thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Glad to be here. This concludes another
1: edition of the I Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash for more episodes or subscribe at iTunes by searching SCCM.
0: Healthcare is too important to stay the same. And now more than ever, we at Cerner Corporation are on a mission to transform it. Our breadth of innovative critical care solutions are enhancing workflows, improving documentation efficiency, and extending ICU resources to improve patient care. And through our sepsis solution within our comprehensive population health management program, We are providing industry-leading alert capabilities that help clinicians detect and treat sepsis quicker. We believe that every life deserves the best possible outcome. Join us on our mission. Visit Cerner.com today. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC, is editor of the iCritical Care Podcasts. He is the chief medical officer at Centennial Women's and Children's Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. His clinical practice is focused on critical care, pediatric and adult burn surgery, and emergency general surgery. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.